All right. You know, we've been talking off and on, at least for the last four weeks, about 15 characteristics of the love of God. That's 15 characteristics that God says are qualities of true love. Qualities of God's kind of love. And the Holy Spirit of God has used the Apostle Paul to list these qualities in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll go there here in a minute. But we've covered the first seven qualities of love. And can I just say something? Wow. These are really challenging. These are difficult at times. It seems to me that true love, it seems that God's kind of love requires a lot of work. It's apparent that God's kind of love requires significant effort. And it's obvious to me that if I'm going to love like God loves, I'm going to need a lot of grace. From God, amen, to love like that. And that reminded me of a story that maybe you've heard way back, but it's about this gentleman who fell in love with an opera singer. And this opera singer would sing down there, and one day this gentleman fell in love with her through a set of binoculars on the third floor balcony. And he was just absolutely convinced that he could live happily ever after married to a voice like that. He scarcely noticed that that woman was older than him, and he didn't really care that she walked with a limp. He said that her beautiful voice would get them through all the challenges that their marriage might incur. Well, after a whirlwind romance and a hurry-up wedding, they were off to their honeymoon where they were going to celebrate and prepare for their first night together. Well, as he watched his new wife, his chin dropped to his chest. She plucked out her glass eye and dropped it into a bowl on the nightstand. And then she pulled off her wig. She yanked off her false eyelashes. And then she took out her dentures and smiled at him as she unstrapped her artificial leg. Horrified, the man said, for goodness sake, woman, sing, sing, sing. Some say that true love is blind. You know what it is? But that doesn't make it any less challenging. Love can be difficult at best. And the first seven characteristics are these. God's love is patient. God's kind of love is kind. God's love is not jealous. It does not boast. Love is not prideful. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. And today, we're going to look at the next four from verse 6 or verse 5 and 6. Where the Bible says that love is not provoked, love thinks no evil, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Quality number eight in our study 
is that love is not easily provoked. Now, you provoke something, normally you provoke something to anger. And the message translation helps me to understand this a little bit better. The message says, love doesn't easily fly off the handle. Love doesn't lose its cool. You see, there are some people who have a short fuse. Amen. They get mad at the littlest of things. Some people are thin-skinned. Others are hot-headed. And some are easily, easily angered. But when the Bible says that love is not provoked, what it means is that that kind of love is not easily angered. You don't get angry very easily with your spouse, with your children, with your family at large, with your church family. You don't get angry very easily with your co-workers or even with your classmates. You see, it said that anger is its own worst enemy. Now, I have known many people who criticize the Bible, even reject the Bible because they say all that is is a list of do's and don'ts. But I say this book is a common sense book. It's a book that God has given us for our own good. And it makes really good sense if you'll just read it and apply it to your life. And anger is one of those emotions that the Bible addresses. Why? Because anger can cause heart attacks, high blood pressure, can cause sleeplessness. Anger can cause stomach problems, headaches, and the list goes on and on. However, how many of you know that there just ain't no pleasing some people? Amen. I read an interesting story about that from Maranatha Magazine. And the story went like this. It said that the wife of a very hard-to-please husband was determined that for one day she was going to try her best to please her husband. And so she said, darling, what would you like for breakfast this morning? And he kind of growled at her and he said, coffee and toast and grits and sausage and Two eggs, one scrambled and one fried. Well, very quickly, that wife had the food set right on the table and she waited for just one word of praise from that hard-to-please husband. And after a quick glance, that husband said, Well, I'll be doggone, woman. You scrambled the wrong egg. It just ain't no pleasing some people. And that's one of the reasons why God wants us to control our anger. He wants us to control our anger. Why? Because it's for our best good. But a short fuse. How to control anger also may indicate that there are other issues that need attention here. Right? Ephesians verse, chapter 4 verse 30, the Bible tells us, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, which is just shouting and screaming, and evil speaking be put away from you, including all malice. You see, if you are a Christian, 
with a short fuse. If you are a Christian who easily gets angry, the real problem may be that you're grieving the Holy Spirit in another area. And it might be some uh, opportunity for you to do a self-examination, a self-check about your own walk with the Lord. Because the only surefire way to deal with out-of-control anger is a closer walk with Jesus. And if you're getting angry all the time, if you're constantly blowing your top, if you're constantly struggling with a short fuse, maybe you're struggling with your walk with Jesus. So, out-of-control anger is a problem. It's, and it's often a reflection, if you will, of other sin issues that may be going on in that person's life. Now, the Bible then encourages us to be in control of our anger. And that's interesting. The Bible says, be angry, yet do not sin. In other words, don't sin by letting your anger control you. And don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Notice what we learn in that verse. The verse doesn't deny anger. It's almost like God says, I know there's going to be times when you get angry. I know there's going to be times when you get mad. But we need to understand that the Christian is not some super saint that never gets mad. Right? We all have that, that level where we've had it and we're not going to take it no more and we get angry. Amen? The Bible recognizes that. And that we all get angry from time to time. But Scripture encourages us to be in control of it. To be in control of our anger. And that's why the Bible says, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, I read a story about one couple who agreed that they were going to live by that verse. They would never go to bed and go to sleep while they were still mad at each other. They agreed on that. But they had to confess that in their marriage, there was one time where they hadn't slept for a whole week. Why? Because they were angry. But they were agreeing to their, and their vow to their God. So, the anger of one who has God's love it's not easily provoked to anger. It doesn't fly off the handle, if you will, in anger. But now quality number nine, the Bible says, love thinks no evil. Now, another translation, the New Living Translation, defines that this way. It says, love keeps no record of when it's been wronged. Love keeps no record of when it's been, when it's been wronged. Now, that word thinks, love Thinks no evil is actually an accounting word. It's a word that you would find uh, when you're entering something into a ledger, right? You're keeping track of what's going on. That's what that word thinks means. So the Bible's teaching us here, avoid keeping score of how you've been wronged. Avoid keeping score of how you've been wronged. Don't count over and over again the ways that somebody has done you wrong. Why? Because it only hurts you. In his book, Lee, The Last Years, Charles Flood wrote about the story of General Robert E. Lee going to this Kentucky family's home and speaking to this woman who was upset about the remains of this grand old oak tree that was in her front yard. 
that the Union Army had virtually destroyed. She bitterly cried over this oak tree. And she looked to General Lee for some word condemning what the North had done to her and to that oak tree. But after a brief silence, General Lee said, Ma'am, cut that thing down and forget it. It's better to forgive the injustices of the past than to allow them to remain and cause bitterness. Is that not wisdom overload or what? Amen? I mean, General Lee must have had a good head on his shoulders. But here's kind of what he was saying. Storing up negative memories in our minds only builds resentment right here in our hearts. And friends, resentment is like a poison to your heart. The Bible teaches us to pursue peace. To pursue peace and uh, seek to live a clean and holy life for those who don't won't even see the Lord. That's a powerful scripture. But it goes on to say, not only will you not see the Lord, but see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes you trouble. You know, often when we help people with some money, sometimes we wonder, I wonder what they're going to do with that. I mean, have you ever given somebody some money who's been in need and then you, you see them later out drinking or smoking or partying? Say, yeah, I guess I just paid for that, right? That's what we think. But listen, friend, don't let that incident make you reluctant to help people in need. Don't let that incident create in you a root of bitterness where now you don't have any desire to help people in need just because of what happened in that one circumstance. But did you know that some people store up memories in order to use it as a weapon in the future? It's like those old Western movies where the poker players put that little pistol up in their sleeve. Right? They go to enjoy the poker game prepared, armed, and in defense, knowing that they might have to, to shoot a cheating card player. Well, sometimes we use old memories like that. Sometimes we use unforgiveness that way. Sometimes we use all the ways that we've been wronged the same way, and we stay on defense, armed, and ready to lash out. But listen, whenever you store up memories of others, you're just disobeying the command that Jesus gave to forgive. Jesus said, if you forgive men their trespasses, so will your father forgive you. Paul said to the believers, the Christians at Ephesus, he said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God forgave you. Listen, friends, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to ourselves to forgive those who've wronged us. We owe it to ourselves to forgive those who have harmed us because unforgiveness only hurts us. 
Unforgiveness does not hurt the other person. They probably don't even know it. So when we fail to forgive, we're only hurting ourselves. And listen, friends, if God doesn't store up memories of our sins, how much more should we not store up the memories of how people have wronged us? Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 12, the writer of the book says this, but this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And then in verse 16, the Lord continues, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them and listen carefully. And then he adds, their sins... And their lawless deeds I will remember no more. If God doesn't remember my sins as a believer in Christ Jesus, what authority do I have to remember the ways that people have harmed me? Friend, if you're storing up memories of your sins or of somebody else's sins against you, I want to encourage you to do this. You take those sins and you wad them up and you throw them in the trash can at the foot of Jesus' cross. Because he already died for that. He already died for that sin. He already died for the ways that you've been harmed and for the sins committed against you. I think Peter had it right when he said, And above all things, have a fervent love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Somebody, you let that love cover the multitude of sin. Friend, listen, love is not easily provoked. Love thinks no evil. It doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't keep any record of wrongs. And now we come to verse 10, actually number 10 and number 11. And those qualities are in one sentence, but they're different. The Bible says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth. Notice the first half, that it is positive. The second half is negative. But listen, they go together like Siamese twins. Okay? They're very important. Let's look, look at the first half first. The negative command, love does not rejoice in iniquity. Another translation the Bible says, love is never glad... When others do wrong. You know, for some reason, there seems to be this certain mean streak in human nature that actually takes pleasure when other people mess up. Maybe they think, well, that just makes me look better when they mess up. But can I tell you, that is not the spirit of God's love. So if that happens in your life, change that. But there's another side to the same truth, and that is do not delight in exposing people's failures. Now this is going to uh, go against a lot of people's living because many people, if they live by this principle, would never gossip again in their lives. Amen? Many times, if people live by this principle, there would be no need for tabloids. It spread gossip, right? I went to the website of the National Enquirer one time, 
And I found this headline that explained this verse very well. Here's the headline. Tim Tebow's Dark Family Secrets. Now, if you know me, I'm a Florida Gator fan, and I remember the Tim Tebow days. And, and I love Tim Tebow. I love his walk for Christ and his, his, his demand uh, for people to know Jesus. But the article said this about God-fearing ex-football player Tim Tebow. It said he's got more than just skeletons in his closet. He's got family. seems what they were talking about was Tim's brother, Robbie. Robbie got in trouble one time for slapping a police horse in the hindquarter. And the judge convicted him to about 15 hours of community service. So when they couldn't find anything on Tim himself, they said, well, we'll just go after his family. And so they speculated, and they began to sell their trash of misfortune, sell their bad decisions of others, their decisions of uh, what other people think, and they don't care whether it's true or whether it's not. But God's kind of love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. God's kind of love doesn't want to expose other people's failures. Now, for the flip side of that coin, the 11th quality of love, which is the positive side of the 10th, says love rejoices in the truth. Now, the New Living Translation translates it this way. Real love rejoices when truth wins. This should be one that is very fond uh, in the eyes of many Christians. True love, God's kind of love, rejoices when truth wins. Now, I want to share a complaint, if I can. I wish that my news feed would share more good news about good things that are going on in the world. I mean, I get a negativity overload sometimes in my Facebook feed. Now, it makes me a little bit ill when all I'm hearing is bad, bad, bad. It kind of gets me even depressed. A little bit. And it begins to taint the way that I look at people and society and our country, etc., etc. Now, I'm not saying that I want to be lied to. I'm not saying we shouldn't know the bad things that need our attention. Here's what I'm saying. Why not focus on the good things a little bit? Amen? So, I want to encourage you to give some people some good feedback. Give people some good news uh, to rejoice to. And that's why I love sharing scripture verses. And I love sharing testimonies about what God has done. That's good news. Amen. There's enough bad. Let's make sure that we post some good news. Now, let's look at that truth again. Love rejoices when truth wins. One great example from Jesus' earthly ministry illustrates this very well. You remember it. It was that one incident when those self-righteous religious leaders came and brought a woman to Jesus. They said that that woman had been caught in the act of adultery. And they said that they wanted to stone her to death for that sin that she had committed. Now, what you need to know is, is right out of the gate, Jesus did not condone her sin. He didn't say, woman, what you've been doing is okay. 
but neither did he condemn her because of her sin. Instead, I want you to see what Jesus tried to do. Jesus wanted to encourage her. Jesus wanted to help her to be a better her. Jesus wanted to encourage her to go and sin no more. To realize what she had done. And to walk away from Jesus different. Do you know you should walk away from church every Sunday different than you walked in? Because of Jesus. Jesus offered her hope for her future. And he offered her forgiveness for her present. But he didn't condone what she was doing. But he didn't condemn her for her sin. You see, true love, friend, true love sees people's potential. True love sees what people might be in the right circumstances. True love is able to look past people's mistakes and see what they are capable of. Why? Because Jesus did. Jesus did. And that's what real love does. It rejoices when truth wins. So, we've covered the first 11 traits of God's kind of love. And it's become obvious to me that love has to be active. If I just say that you're loved, it really doesn't mean a hill of beans. I have to show you that I love you. Love is not some passive quality. No love, true love, God's love, must be exercised. It must reveal itself. It must manifest itself in the way we treat other people. And that reminds me of our vision statement here at Bethel Baptist Church. It's in our bulletin. You may not know it. Many people do. But the vision statement for our church is sharing the love of Jesus across the way and around the world. Sharing the love of Jesus across the way and around the world. And that kind of love is not easily provoked. That love of Jesus thinks no evil. That kind of love does not rejoice in iniquity. That kind of love Rejoices when the truth is told. When truth wins, it rejoices in the truth. You know, when God gives us a submissive heart to, to welcome that attitude, He'll take that attitude and He'll transform it into an event where God's love can be shown to somebody. Think about this. God takes your small deeds of kindness. He takes them and then he transforms them into an opportunity for that person to know the love of God. And you have been the instrument, the tool through which he used to show that person the love of God. You know, I remember a Facebook post from years ago. And it was the testimony of one of our teenagers from the Bethel Youth Group. And what we had done is we had...
taken some of those teenagers out to visit some folks in uh, our community on a Wednesday night. And she was really, really touched by that. And here's what she wrote. She said, I had a great time at church tonight. We went out and we visited some people. Smiley face. We had prayer and we shared some Bible verses with them. She said, it's so sweet to know that we made their day just by going to visit them. That simple act of active love became a God event. It became an opportunity for God to use that ministry to show somebody the love of God. God wants you and I to be actively loving other people. Maybe that's an area that you need to improve on too. Let us be actively loving other people because that kind of love is not provoked. That kind of love doesn't think any evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. And I can't think of a better way to sum up this message than to tell you and encourage you to never stop loving. Never stop loving other people. You know why? Jesus never stopped loving you. And that is the whole theme Lord's Supper is Jesus not just saying he loves you but showing you that he loves you the song that brother Howe is going to sing will serve not only as a preparation for our Lord's Supper but also as an invitation for you to come to Christ if it's the Lord's will for you to do so let's pray Father God you are an amazing God and I'm so thankful for your love of your people. Lord, I'm so thankful that your love doesn't get provoked to anger very fast. I'm thankful that your, your love doesn't keep a record of my wrongs. Lord, I'm thankful that your love doesn't rejoice in the wicked things that I do, but rejoices in the truth and how the truth of Jesus Christ is made manifest in our lives in coming to Jesus and also in serving him with the rest of our lives. Father, if there is one person who needs to come to Jesus today to walk out of this building changed, to walk out of this building transformed by the saving grace of God, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them to take one step of faith out, one step forward, and Lord, I'll show them what the Bible says about how they can be saved. Father, I pray you would have your will and your way in all of our lives as we seek to serve you with all of our heart mind, soul, and spirit. In Jesus' name we ask it. And all God's people said. Let's all stand. You can sing it if you know it. I read the words he read How you leave the night tonight To find the one missing like was written with me in your mind and the prodigal son 
Love is the theme of the Lord's Supper, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul 
shares the institution of the Lord's Supper uh, with those church members there, with those believers. And again, it's divided into three divisions that are very, very important. And I mentioned the first one already that comes in verse 27 of chapter 11 where Paul wrote to these believers, just like us, saying, Therefore, whoever eats of this bread or drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that's important. In an unworthy manner, that means if you haven't confessed your sins to the Lord, if you haven't asked for Him to cleanse you from those sins, if you haven't turned from those sins, then you're still in an unworthy manner, if I, if I can t- say that. In an unworthy manner, we'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and then so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So there's a lot of conditioning that has to go on here before we can even partake of this Lord's Supper, okay? Uh, I pray that during our prayer time, you've done that already. That you've asked the Lord to do His work on the sins that you've committed this past week or, or however long. And I want to just encourage you to do that on a daily basis. Now take a look at the second division. In verse 23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord. That's important. He got this from Jesus, okay? I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, Take Eat, this is my body which is broken for you. You see, you were on Jesus' mind as he hung on the cross. And he said here, take and eat this body which is broken for you and do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for the blessing of being forgiven of our sins. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that was met as Jesus gave up his body to be brutally whipped, beaten, torn, and ultimately crucified. Father, without that sacrifice, we would all still be lost in our sins. We take this Lord's Supper, we take this bread which is emblematic of the body of Christ, the body which was given for us. And Lord, we take this and we consume it. Lord, that we are part of the body of Christ. Father, I pray that we would always remember the incredible sacrifice that Jesus gave in the giving of his body. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. third part, the third division of the Lord's Supper as Paul instituted it, comes in verse 25. And Paul wrote, in the same manner as you did the bread, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant, here's the important part, in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, the Bible says that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And I'm thankful that we don't have to be about 
sacrificing animals over and over and over again, uh, both for the priests and the pastors and, and all the believers. No, Jesus shed his blood once for all that the sins of all those who believe in him would be forever cleansed and forever forgiven. That being said, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, thank you for shedding for us. Lord, thank you that by remembering the shedding of your blood, we're also remembering what our sin condition was before we came to you. But we're living in the condition that we live in because of you. Lord, we thank you today for the forgiveness of sin that we live in because you shed your blood on the cross. And we just want to praise you and we remember that today. And we just want to thank you, Lord. And we pray this prayer in your name and all God's people said. Friends, I want to remind you of your potential. In our life group this morning, we began a new series talking about spiritual maturity. Talking about really that it's high time for us all to grow up a little bit more. That we should all be growing, I-N-G, right? We should never stop growing uh, as long as we're on this earth. God is preparing us. He knows your potential when you get to heaven. And he wants to prepare us today to be able to worship him the way he deserves to be worshipped. And that means not only in a church service, but also in the lives you live Monday through Saturday. So I want to encourage you to continue growing in the Lord. Growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would please stand. Mike, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind.